The Mishnah Torah is a 14-volume book that was written 800 years ago by Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, known by the acronym in Hebrew Rambam, or in English as Maimonides, one of the most important figures in Judaism and Jewish history. And what makes him so important is his book, Mishnah Torah, while he has some other important books and other important life achievements, but his most important work and life achievement certainly is the Mishnah Torah. The Mishnah Torah is an encyclopedic work that covers the entirety of Jewish law. At the time it was written, 800 years ago, it was the most comprehensive book of Jewish law ever written. And it remains the most comprehensive Jewish book of Jewish law today, 800 years later. At the time it was written, it was revolutionary, bringing all of Jewish law into a single encyclopedic work. And as a result, it spread very, very quickly in Maimonides' own lifetime. And this is before printing, when everything had to be copied by hand, a 14-volume work copied by hand. And it spread all across the Jewish world and made Maimonides very, very famous in the Rambam within his own lifetime. And it raised him to the stature of one of the greatest, if not the greatest, Jewish scholar of his time. Today, 800 years later, it remains one of the most important and central works of Judaism. Since it was written by Maimonides 800 years ago, hundreds of commentaries, if not more, have been written on the Rambam. And it has become its own field of Jewish scholarship. There's a whole field. If you go to a Jewish library, there will be a whole section of Rambam and its commentary, of Mishnah Torah and its commentaries. So we did a class previously on the Rambam on Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon. We spoke about him and his life story in great detail. Uh, it's on the podcast, and if you would like to l- learn his whole life story, uh, you can probably go to his Wikipedia page, but you can also listen to the podcast. Uh, but just in brief, Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon was born in Cordoba, Spain in 1135 to a very prominent rabbinic family. When he was in Cordoba, Spain at the time, was one of the largest cities in the world, the center of Islamic culture, um, a very um, open Islamic culture, and, um, very, uh, and center of scholarship, really, throughout the world, and uh, one of the great centers of Judaism. Many, very Jewish city, very, very large Jewish community at the time. When the, my mon, when the Rambam, Rabbi Moshe Ben was 13 years old, the al which was this radical Muslim group from Morocco, captured Cordoba and much of, um, much of um, Spain or Islamic Spain at the time. Um, and uh, <coughs> the Rambam was forced to flee with all the Jews because the al essentially, although it was rare in Islamic history, was a group that made everyone either convert or they would kill them. And so the Jews were forced to flee. It's after years of wandering throughout Spain, fleeing the Almohids ahead of them and having to flee again, the family arrived in Fez, Morocco, which at the time was also under control of the Almohids. However, they were able to live as Jews over there. Uh, although they did not have many freedoms and life was very difficult there. Uh, but over there in Fez, studied, the Rambam studied medicine um, and became already famous as a great Jewish scholar. His first um, letters, uh, public letters, are written in um, and kind of responses to people 
who are asking him questions are written when he's already in Fez. He's a young man now, um, still in his 20s. Um, but in 1165, at the age of 30, Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon um, and his family are forced now to flee Morocco um, because he becomes pretty well known. Um, it's, there's different theories why he had to flee. And they decide to make their way to the land of Israel, all across the Mediterranean. They're on the western end of the Mediterranean. They travel all across the Mediterranean. Very, very long, difficult trip um, where their life was in danger multiple times, the Rambam writes. And um, they make it to the land of Israel. They arrive in the land of Israel hoping to settle over there and discover, of course, there wasn't much communication, so they didn't know well what was going on in the land of Israel. They arrive in the land of Israel, they discover that the land of Israel by then had already been, this is already 60 years, 70 years into the Crusader period, which was a 200-year period where Israel was just, or 160, 70-year period, where Israel was just um, destroyed by endless wars between Christians and Muslims. And um, this was in the middle of the Crusader period. And they come and they describe, discover that Israel is totally uninhabitable at the time. Um, there are very few people living there. Um, the land is essentially all turned into um, forts, um, being fought back and forth between Muslims and Christians, um, you know, supported from outside of Israel. And um, there really are no inhabitants of the land, let alone Jews, during this period. So, unable to settle in Israel. Some people did try to settle in Israel, even during this period. It didn't go very well. It was very, very difficult. Um, and so they, he moves, they moved to Egypt. Egypt at the time was the center of um, Saladin, was the um, great ruler of Egypt at the time. And um, he had, um, and Israel, uh, Egypt was a great Islamic open-minded center. And um, there was a great Jewish community in Cairo. And so they settled in, he with his brother, with his family, they, with their families, they settled in Egypt. There in Egypt, he was able to dedicate himself to studying, teaching, and writing full-time. His brother David supported him and his family. He had a jewelry business. He would import gems from India. And, um, and uh, that was, and he did well enough to support both families, allowing the Rambam to study full-time. It was during this time that he completed his commentary on the Mishnah, his first major work. The Mishnah is the first work of our oral tradition, written around the year 200, and he wrote an extensive commentary on it. Um, and that he had a work that he had already started much earlier when he was in Morocco, and he completed this work in um, Egypt. And then he spent 10 years, dedicated 10 years, to writing his, um, the, the, his uh, life, masterwork, which was the Mishnah Torah. After he finished the Mishnah Torah, um, tragedy struck. His brother was on a ship to India, where he had all his money um, to purchase gems over there, and um, the ship was um, destroyed at sea. His brother died together and left the family, family penniless. The Rambam himself was sick for a year from grief after that, but he was forced to go to work. He was trained as a doctor, and so he opened a medical practice. Too. He did not want to take money from being a rabbi. He did not want to get a job of being a rabbi. Um, and so he opened a medical practice. Um, his fame quickly grew as a doctor, and soon Saladin himself asked the Rambam to become his personal physician, family physician, which he agreed. And so he worked both as a physician for the 
sultan as well, the king of Egypt, as well as had his own private practice as well. Um, by now, at this time, he also became the leader of the Jewish community in Cairo, and effectively the Jewish community in, e in Egypt. Um, he was extremely busy in a very famous letter. He writes his day schedule. He's extremely busy as a doctor for the sultan, has his own private practice. He's the communal leader at the time. And by now he's world famous and he's answering questions sent to him from all over the world, from as far away as France and Germany. Um, he's getting you know, letters and he's responding to letters. And uh, he, he's also, he has, a, he has a yeshiva students that study with him. And so he really is very, very busy right now. Um, uh, and, uh, but somehow during this later part of his life, he found time to write his important work on philosophy, Mora Nevuchim, Guide to the Perplexed, which remains today one of the most important works on Jewish philosophy. Um, when he died in Egypt in 1204, he was the most renowned, respected Jewish scholar of his day. But his, all his works became classics, but particularly his most important work, the Mishnah Torah, became the classic. Um, on his tombstone, he was buried in Tiberias, and on his tomb in Israel, and on his tombstone it is written, Mi Moshe ad Moshe lo kam kamoshe. From Moses until Moses, meaning from the original Moses, until Moses Maimonides, none rose like Moses. Uh, and so he was really a unique, one of the greatest Jewish scholars, leaders to have ever lived. So our focus today is going to be on his most important work, the Mishneh Torah. Now, the word Mishneh Torah itself means the second Torah. It's actually the Hebrew name for Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the second Torah, the five, fifth book of the Torah. Uh, but he called his work Mishneh Torah. Why did he call his work Mishneh Torah? Because when Maimonides, prior to Maimonides, there were many, many works of Jewish law. There's the written Torah itself. But the written Torah is not the basis of our law. Rather, it's a cryptic document that cryptically records our laws and traditions and teachings. But the law was given to Moses orally and was passed on from generation to generation. We've done classes before on the oral law. The oral law, the first work of the oral tradition that was written down was the Mishnah. The Mishnah was written around the year 200, or about 1,500 years after Moses, the first work of the oral law was written, the Mishnah. But after that, the more works of the oral law were written, the Tosefta, there were Halachic Midrasha written from that period. So there were many works from that particular era, around the 200s when the Torah was first written down. And then there were the analytical works written explaining the original works of the oral tradition that was written down. The Jerusalem Talmud, the comprehensive, massive Babylonian Talmud. There was the that the Talmuds themselves, the Babylonian Talmud, was written around the year 500. Maimonides was living some 700 years later. Some, uh, he was living in the, well, in the 1100s, so late 1100s. So there was, after the ending of the Talmud, there was what was known as the Gaonic period. One day we should do a class on the Gaonic period. There were 600 years um, when the Jewish life was centered around the great schools in Babylon. <laughs> to, uh, there were great schools in Babylon led by what was known as the Gaonim. During that period, a number of ga uh, scholars wrote various works of Jewish law, as well as there were thousands and thousands of responsa, chuvot, or letters written by 
Jewish leaders in Babylon to Jewish communities around the world that looked to them for guidance and that were widespread. Um, also, in um, following the Gaonic period, after the community in Babylon dwindled and the yeshivas closed, and communities grew all across the Mediterranean, in Italy, in France, in Spain, in Morocco, in Tunisia, uh, there were many, many Jewish yeshivas, many Jewish scholars, many of them wrote various commentaries on the Talmud, halachic works. So there were many, many books until Maimonides, but it wasn't centralized in one place. There was no single work of the oral tradition. His goal was to create a Mishnah Torah, a second Torah, where he writes in his introduction, you can take, read the written Torah, and if you want the oral Torah, this is you're going to be your number one go-to place to get the entire oral Torah in one spot. So this will be the second Torah. This will be the, if you want to study the oral Torah, this will be the book that you need to read. Now, in addition to Mishnah Torah, I should mention that the, it's, the, name, the book is often referred to by another name, Yad HaChazaka. Yad HaChazaka means the strong hand. Why is it referred to as Yad HaChazaka? So it's generally assumed that the name came because the word hand, Yad, is also, in Hebrew, numbers are written with letters. Yud Dalet is 14. And so the book Mishnah Torah is a 14-volume book. And so because it was 14 volumes, it was referred to as the Yad, the hand. And there's a verse that speaks of God's strong hand, so it was referred to as Yad HaChazaka. And it's hypothesized that many scholars prefer to call it Yad HaChazaka, not the name given to it by Maimonides himself, rather than call it Mishnah Torah, the second Torah, because they felt the term second Torah is a little bit presumptuous. To call your work the second Torah. <laughs> so therefore they prefer to refer to it as Yad HaChazaka. Today it's known by both titles. It's often referred to as Mishnah Torah, the second Torah, the name given to it by its author, as well as Yad HaChazaka, the strong hand. So the goal of this work of Maimonides was to bring all of the knowledge of oral Torah that existed until his days. Many, 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 many books, dozens and dozens of books that existed. Some of them very difficult analytical books, some of them straightforward books. Bring it all together in a well-organized encyclopedic fashion. And perhaps Maimonides, the Rambam's greatest brilliance, was he was an organizer. He organized a number of things besides organizing the Mishnah Torah, the Jewish law into the Mishnah Torah. He also organized Jewish philosophy in his guide to the perplexed. He organized 13 principles of faith. He was the first one to spell it out, exactly what the basics of Jewish faith was. He is, was an organizer. And that was his brilliance as an organizer. And he also had a very clear, easy-to-read writing style. Not all writers write well and clearly in ways that things are clear and concise. And this allowed him to put together this really amazing encyclopedic work. How do you do it? How do you take from many, 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 many works, dozens and dozens of different books, um, and bring them all together into a single encyclopedic work? How do you do that? So the number one step to building an encyclopedia is to create an index. You first need to have an index of topics that you are going to cover. If you want to reorganize things in an organized way, the first thing you need to do is to create an index. 
And that's what they do. Anytime you make an encyclopedia, first you create an index, and then you use that index to then build each topic, topic by topic. Once you have a list of all the relevant topics that you build in your index, then the next step is you find all the relevant sources related to each topic. Once you have that, then you can organize all those sources, which are now indexed by topic. Each <coughs> topic can now be organized in a clear, concise manner. Right? So that's the basic process of building an encyclopedia. It's the way Maimonides did it, who built one of the first encyclopedias probably ever written, and it's the way it's still done today. Yes? So, how did he have knowledge of all of the information that was out there, and how, how did he um, get that information? He studied for many, many years, and he studied a lot and was a brilliant man. So he has studied all of the oral Torah that was available in his day, um, including, we know, books that we don't have anymore, that haven't survived, that he had, um, that we know of, but we don't, we haven't actually, you know, we don't have the originals. Um, but he, he studied a lot, and he must have had a big library, or had it somehow memorized, one of the two, because he definitely quotes, um, you know, from very, very large number of books um, from just about everything that existed in his day. He does list his references. Sorry? He does list his references, but he doesn't... We'll get to that. He actually doesn't. But we, we've worked on listing those references. So... So the... To- so how do you make an index? So he sat down to make an index to build this encyclopedic work. How do you make an index? So... We know, the Talmud tells us, that God gave us 613 commandments. The laws are based on those commandments. So he decided to use the 613 commandments as his index. You know all the commandments, then you could build topics based on those commandments. So the Torah has many, many commandments, both positive and negative, 613 in total. Our sages say there are 248 positive commandments, 365 negative commandments. So our oral tradition gives us the number. But our oral tradition does not list what those 613 commandments are. So what are they? So there were a number of people before Maimonides, such as um, an anonymous book called Halachot Gedolot, um, Rav Sadja Gaon, Rav Shlomo Ibn Gavriel, who offered, um, sorry, who, who wrote lists of the 613 commandments. Who so had created their own lists, went through the Torah, went through the oral tradition, and created their own list of what they thought were the 613 commandments. However, the Rambam, after reading their lists, felt that all their lists were all the lists that existed in his day were all inaccurate. And he decided he's going to make his own list of the 613 commandments. But to do that, you have to define what exactly is a commandment. For example, the Torah says that Jewish men must wear tefillin every day. That includes one that is one tefillin that is worn on your arm and one that is worn on your head. Is that one commandment or two commandments? We must recite Shema once in the morning and once in the evening. Is that one commandment or two commandments? Two commandments. It says, go in Hashem's ways. Is that a commandment? The Torah says, guard my commandments. Is that a commandment? 
How do you define a commandment? What exactly is a commandment? What's not a commandment? What about the building of the tabernacle, the Mishkan, the temporary temple in the desert? Are those commandments? They were just done once and never again. Or commandments to Moses to make trumpets, to call the people in the desert, to, to, um, to summon the people in the desert. Well, that was only done in the desert. Is that still a commandment? What about commandments like observing Hanukkah? That's not mentioned in the Torah. That was created by the Sanhedrin, by the Supreme Council of Judaism much later. Is that one of the 613 commandments? So before he could figure out the 613 commandments, first he had to create a series of rules to define what is a commandment. So he did that. He created a series of rules where he wrote exactly what he feels is a commandment and isn't a commandment. Long introduction or long rules where he explains each rule what fits, what is considered a commandment, what's not considered a commandment, which commandments are lumped together as a single commandment and just different parts of one commandment, what's considered two commandments. He goes through all these details. Then, after he has the rules, then he lists all 613 commandments, 248 positive commandments, 365 negative commandments. And then he wrote this all before he started his Mishnah Torah. He then wrote a book called the Book of Commandments, where he explains each commandment, in short, what it is, what the commandment is, which he believes that every commandment can be found in the written Torah. To be considered one of the 630 commandments, it must be explicit in the written Torah. And so he finds the verse, the source for each one in the written Torah, and then tells us who it applies to, when it applies, and just the basic rules of each commandment. That's the first thing he did before he even began the Mishnah Torah. It's a great work called the Sefer HaMitzvot, the Book of Commandments. The Maimonides' book, uh, list of commandments, by the way, became the classic. Not everyone agreed with him. Many commentaries were written on his Book of Commandments. Many said he should have included this one, he should have included that one. But even though people adjusted a few of them over the years... His list remains today the most um, used list of the 613 commandments. Um, and that, by the way, is its own genre, its own section of Jewish scholarship. The commandments, right? Figuring out what the 613 commandments are. There are many, many, many books written on it. So now that he had all 613 commandments figured out, he then created 14 books. Each book is a different topic. The first book he called the book of Mado, the book of knowledge. Knowledge is going to cover all of the basics of Judaism, including Jewish beliefs, the way proper character, Jewish character, um, the um, uh, keeping away from idolatry, um, our turning to God, repentance, studying Torah. Second volume he called Ahava Love. Which, which covers the regular ongoing commandments that we, that we have to f- fulfill on a regular basis, such as reading the Shema, wearing tefillin, putting up a mezuzah, circumcision, um, making blessings before and after we eat and before we, we perform a mitzvah. And so these are kind of the regular ongoing commandments. Um, he then, the third volume, he called Zamanim, or time-related commandments, which included Shabbat and all the various holidays, covers all the different holidays. The fourth work he called Nashim, women, which includes all of 
family law, uh, marriage, divorce, um, and other similar family law, the laws of the ketubah, um, and the like. Then the uh, fifth work he called Kedusha, holiness. Holy, in that book he included both uh, who we are allowed to marry and forbidden to marry, as well as all the kosher laws. The next book he called Hafla'a, which is um, uh, words or vows, which cover the laws of vows. The next work he called Zra'im, literally seed, but it covers all of agricultural law, all of Jewish agricultural law, um, the farming, not mixing, not cross, not um, not not mixing spe- uh, species of plants, um, the laws of tithes, um, separating various tithes, um, and um, first bring your first fruit to the temple, truma, the gift that's given to the gifts of the plants that are given to the kohen, and to so various agricultural laws. Um, the next work that he wrote is Avoda, the laws of the various service in the temple and the various services in the temple. The next book is Karbanot, Sacrifices. The next one is Tahara, the laws of ritual purity. The next one is um, Nezikin, the laws of damages or, uh, or um, suit when people sue other people. The next one is the laws of kinyanim, the laws of acquiring things, buying, selling, and the like. The next one is mishpatim, which is business law, loans and partnerships and uh, other business-related law. And the final one is the laws of shoftim, judges, which include um, the laws of actual how the courts work, um, testimony, uh, he also included in there the laws of um, government and kings and the like. So those are the 14 works, the 14 books and topics that he split his encyclopedic work into. And so each of the 14 books is then split into subsections. I mentioned the various subsections that each work included. Um, I mentioned all of them, I mentioned some of them. And so these 14 books are split into 83 subsections that he could calls halachot. Then each subsection, he then, in each subsection, he then took all the relevant commandments and he split the commandments, the 613 commandments, among these 83 different halachot, these 83 different subsections. So now he has 83, 14 general topics, 83 detailed topics, and each one has the relevant commandments. He put the relevant commandments for each topic. So now he could find all of Jewish law. So then he was able to comb through all of Jewish scholarship that existed to his days, find and organize all the laws relevant to each commandment and put it in each subsection with the commandments relevant to that subsection. He split each subsection into chapters and each chapter he then split into paragraphs. So he numbered each chapter and numbered each paragraph creating this massive, comprehensive work, that 14-volume work that essentially became an encyclopedia for all of Jewish law. And each law can be found easily. You just have to think which group, which book would it be in, right? Which topic does it fall under? Which subsection does it fall under within each book? 
And once you do that, you can easily find, just go through you know, those chapters, and you can find the relevant laws. So it's, easy, it's an easy read. It's easy to pick up. Anyone can read it. If you read a Hebrew, it's written in Hebrew. Anyone can read it, and anyone can also go through it and gain comprehensive knowledge in Jewish law. So anyone can do that, and uh, you do that, it will give you um, comprehensive knowledge of um, Jewish law. So, together, this um, so this book of this book of the Rambam, this book of um, Mishnah Torah. Now, as soon as it was published, you remember it was then all handwritten. There was no printing yet. This is in the 11, late 1100s. As soon as he publishes this work, it spreads very, very quickly. It becomes extremely popular. What a great work! It's an excellent work because you can use this work to study all of Jewish law. You could use this work to get a whole comprehensive view of Jewish law. And so it became extremely popular and it became really a foundational work of Jewish law. Now, the book of Mishnah Torah does have, though, some drawbacks. Some what? Some drawbacks, some problems. Firstly, and Annette brought this up earlier, Although he made this amazing, comprehensive work of Jewish law that covers everything and is written very clearly, very concisely, and easy to read Hebrew. However, he didn't write any of his sources. He didn't source anything. Later in his life, he wrote that he regrets that he didn't source it, but by that point he was way too busy to be able to sit and write sources. He did not source it, which is a big problem. Because when scholars see he ruled a certain way about a certain law, what's his source? They go back and look at the Talmud or a different... It doesn't seem to be saying that. How did he get that? He didn't say. So many questions, some of the things that he said. They don't know where he got it from. And so although he did not write his sources, many, many commentaries were written on the Rambam, on the Mishnah Torah over the years, offering sources for all of his very various laws. About 99% of the laws, the sources are obvious for someone who has knowledge of Jewish traditions, of Jewish teachings, and it's easy to find. Um, there's a 1% that were very hard to find, and people could not figure out what his sources were, and then you know, complex commentaries were written trying to figure out exactly how he got wherever he got, how he got to that particular conclusion. But in addition, because he wanted it a straight law, without any differing opinions, he didn't offer this rabbi says this, and this rabbi says that, there's various different opinions, he offered a straight law. He offered a ruling on each and every law. But not all of his contemporaries agreed with him with all of his rulings. They thought he was mistaken in a lot of rulings. In fact, in his own lifetime... There were already scholars um, within his own, in his own lifetime who got his book and wrote, no, wrote um, disagreements. They wrote books where they dis- where they showing where they disagreed with him and disagreed with him in various places. And so the most early Rabbi Avram ben David, um, who was a rabbi from southern France province, and um, Rabbi Zarachia Halevi, wrote books where they disagreed with Maimonides. They thought he was mistaken in many places. So his laws are not necessarily consensus. Not everyone agrees with his rulings. 
And later scholars and later works of Jewish law often ruled in the way they ruled the law. They said the law should be otherwise. It should not be as Maimonides rules. So not only did he fail to write the sources, and while most of it we've been able to source, some of it we've struggled, and scholars have struggled to source, um, there's also many places where other scholars disagree with his interpretation of the Talmud or of the Mishnah or of other works that he used as his sources. And, or what they think is his interpretation. We don't really know what he was thinking because he never wrote it. But, um, but sometimes there were places where other scholars struggled to understand, to, uh, where uh, scholars disagree with him. And places where the way we rule today or the way various communities will rule today does not follow the Rambam's ruling does not follow the way the Rambam ruled. Generally, Sephardic Jews tend to follow the Rambam more so, Ashkenazic Jews less so, um, because the Rambam had studied in Sephardic schools and tended to um, follow Sephardic rulings for things. Uh, but not, not, that's not always the case. Um, and so we don't always follow the Rambam in, in, in its entirety. Yet, although the laws as stated in the Rambam are not always the final halacha as we have them today. Yet, the Rambam today remains the most comprehensive work, most encyclopedic, comprehensive encyclopedia of Jewish law. At the time it was written 800 years ago, it was a comprehensive encyclopedia. It remains so today. Even if we don't rule, follow every single ruling. If you want a good understanding and good knowledge of all of Jewish law, the Mishnah Torah is the best work to get that. I should also mention, in addition to not always ruling, following the Rambam today, um, also in the 800 years since the Rambam, Jewish law has evolved. Many new scenarios have come up. Many new cases have come up. New customs have been have evolved. And so Many things that we do are not mentioned in the Rambam today, right? He doesn't mention about driving cars, for example, and using electricity, right? He didn't have those kind of things. Uh, or he doesn't even speak about the printed book because he didn't have that, right? So there were many things that he didn't have, and so he was unable to... Um, uh, he was unable to... Um, uh, he was unable to write about. So it doesn't cover all Jewish law as it applies today, but it remains the most comprehensive work. No one has succeeded, although some may have tried, no one has succeeded in writing a book as comprehensive and as easy to read as the Rambam's book of Mishnah Torah. So the book of Mishnah Torah, because it's not so useful anymore for practical halacha, for practical law, Practical law, we have many other works that were written since. Shulchan Aruch, the, it's literally the set table, but is the most prominent work of Jewish law that's used today. And we have many other works of Jewish law that have been written since that uh, are more practical, easier to use. So Mishnah Torah largely was not so much a layman's work. It was used by scholars to see how the Rambam ruled in various things. And well, both to study as a study of its own. It became kind of a whole section of study the Mishnah Torah, as well as it was used by scholars to see how the Rambam ruled in various things and then kind of compare that to the ruling of other scholars. However, in 1984, 40, 39 years ago, the Rebbe called for everyone to study the Mishnah Torah. And the Rebbe explained that this is an opportunity today we want to study, but where do you start? 
Torah is so big. There's so much out there. Today you can get a hard drive, or it's also available online, called Otsar HaChachma, that includes 120,000 Jewish books. So many books that it would take you a lifetime just to read the titles of 120,000 books. You start reading, you realize very quickly how long it takes just to read the titles. So it's, it's they're, they're Jewish scholarship, 3,000 years of Jewish scholarship is huge. It's not possible to study everything. But if you want to get a comprehensive knowledge, a comprehensive understanding of Jewish law, the way to do it is by studying the Mishnah Torah. So the Rebbe said, and not only that, the um, Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Liadi, who wrote his own book of Jewish law, the Shulchan Aruch, um, over there he wrote in his laws of Torah study that every Jew should study all of Jewish, all of the oral law. It's a um, mitzvah to study Torah, but the entire Torah. The entire Torah, meaning the entire written Torah, as well as the entire oral law. Now, how do you study the whole oral law? It's too big for any one person to study in their lifetime. Even great scholars don't study everything. So how do you study all of it? So the solution is you've got to study an encyclopedic work that covers everything, or various works that cover everything. So the best way to do it is the Mishnah Torah. It is the most comprehensive encyclopedic work of the oral law. So if you want to fulfill your obligation of studying the entire Torah, the way to do that is by studying the Mishnah Torah. You get a comprehensive overview of the entirety of Jewish law, both practical laws that applies today, as well as laws like temple law, sacrifice law, that we no longer observe, but they're still parts of our that's still part of the oral law, that's still part of the Torah that was given to us. And Maimonides in his work, Mishnah Torah, covers everything, including those laws that are not relevant to us, directly relevant to us today. So therefore, the Rebbe suggested that what we do is we start a, we study in a cycle. And there's a number of these study cycles that have started in the Jewish communion in the last century or so to go through various, I mean, we've been studying the written Torah in an annual cycle for thousands of years, where every year we finish the Torah on Simchat Torah and every week we study a Parsha. But there's been cycles of, to study other Jewish fundamentals, such as studying the Talmud or the Mishnah that have uh, been created over the years. The Rebbe suggested that we all study the Mishnah Torah to give us a comprehensive knowledge of Jewish law. The Rebbe gave three suggestions as to how the Mishnah Torah can be studied. One option is that, now there are, now the Mishnah Torah, as we said, is split up into 14 volumes, 83 sections, each volume is split into sub-sections, and then it's, each section is split into chapters. Um, altogether, um, there are about 1,050 chapters in the entire Mishnah Torah. So one suggestion the Rebbe gave was that if you study three chapters every single day, which is quite a lot to study, then over a year you'll finish the entire Mishnah Torah in one year. For those that find three chapters too much, what you can do is one chapter a day. One chapter a day, it's not that much, um, and then over just under three years, you will, about 1,050 something days, you will finish the entire, um, you'll finish the entire Mishnah Torah. So if you, over this, uh, over this almost three-year period. Um, another suggestion the Rebbe said, for those that find even that too much, what you can do is you can study the daily, the, the mitzvahs, the 613 commandments from Maimonides' book of mitzvahs, Sefer HaMitzvah. 
study the mitzvahs. The mitzvah very short, a uh, few mitzvahs every day, and then every and then within a year you can study the entire. Um, you can study all 613 commandments with their basic explanations um, from the Rambam's Sefer HaMitzvah. By doing that, it allows you to get a comprehensive overview of Jewish law, study all of Jewish law, make you knowledgeable in all of Jewish law, at least give you familiar, you may not remember it all, but it gives you at least familiarity with all of Jewish law, fulfill your obligation of having studied all of it. And uh, you also get to study the same thing that everyone else is studying at the same time. So you're not just doing it on your own, but you're a part of a group. So the Rebbe started this in 1984. Um, and in those years since, people have studied both the three-chapter option, um, which has already finished since 1984, finished the um, Mishnah Torah 42 times. Um, and as well as at the three-chapter option, which finished the Mishnah Torah 14 times already. So the uh, last cycle actually ended yesterday. Today begins the new cycle, both for the three-chapter option, as well as the one-chapter option, as well as the daily mitzvah option. And so it's, this is the 15th cycle of the one-chapter option, um, for example, begins today. So I would encourage you, which is why I decided to t talk about this today, I would encourage you, if you have not yet done this, to try it. Try studying either three chapters is tough, one chapter a day, and then you will finish the entire, that's, that's definitely what I encourage you, to try the one chapter a day. Um, it will take time. Uh, depending on the chapter and depending on how well you want to study it, it will take you anywhere between... 20 minutes and an hour a day of your time. So it's dedicated every single day without exception. So even kind of weekends and uh, Yom Kippur and uh, you know, days when you're on vacation, every day you got to do it. So you can't miss a day because then you fall behind. Um, so it's every single day. But it's really, it's, it's, it's a commitment, but it's really an amazing opportunity. Now, how do you study it? How do you get hold of it? So the, you have a number of different options as to how you can study the Mishnah Torah. One option is to get the book. Today there are a number of English translations of the Mishnah Torah. There was an English translation done a couple years ago by Rabbi Tauger, published by Moznayim, um, which is a very comprehensive translation with very, very extensive footnotes. If you want to really study it in depth, that is a great, great option. Mishnah Torah. It's published by Moznayim, is the publisher. Rabbi, is there a copy here? We have one in our library of the Moznayim one. We have a copy in our library. In the, of the English, yeah, Moznayim copy. Rabbi Tauger is the translator, and Moznayim is the publisher. Another, you can just, you can just Google Mishnah Torah, and it will come up. These will all come up. Another option is um, not long ago, um, Koran Publishers um, published a translation by Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz, uh, who also translated the entire Talmud. Um, they have a, tra a translation of the Talmud. He translated the Mishnah Torah as well. So you can get that as well. I'm pretty sure both are available on Amazon, or you can get it directly from the publishers or from any other Jewish bookstore. Um, probably from any major bookstore. 
Um, and then there's a third translation that was just done recently called Pardas HaMelech. I think that's only available from their website. Um, uh, but those are, so you can buy the book, one option, and then carry the book around wherever you go. One option. Another option. We give out these Chayenu booklets. These Chayenu booklets include within them the entire, the Mishnah Torah, the one chapter a day. And in, 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 with a translation um, and very basic commentary. Um, and so uh, you can use these Chayenu booklets and every day study the Mishnah Torah from the Chayenu booklets. Um, we put them out, we get a couple for the shul that we kind of make available to the public. It's first come, first served. You also have the option of um, subscribing directly through us and picking it up here every week and then we'll put it aside for you. Or you have an option of, um, or you have an option of just subscribing directly to your house. You could have it delivered, then you've got to pay shipping, but you could have it delivered to your house every week, uh, mailed to your house. Um, they also have an app that you can get for a small fee. Uh, they have an app that you can get for your phone or your iPad. Uh, so that's a, another option. What do you mean by study? Because for me, study means I read something so that if I got tested on it, I could answer the So question. to do that will take you time. Definitely a good thing. Or you can read through it kind of quicker where you don't memorize it all that you remember it, but just to get a general knowledge. Okay, so, so you both are, both are, you can do both. I think a general knowledge is very valuable, even if you don't remember it. You'll remember bits and pieces and you'll gain familiarity with it. Um, if you can really study it, then you can study it for a test, that, that would be great. Um, but uh, that would be more time consuming. Um, there's another option, which is the um, Chabad.org has an app called Daily Study by Chabad.org that you can download from the App Store or for those with on Androids from Google Play. Um, and that includes various daily study cycles, including the daily Torah reading, the daily Tanya, and it also includes the daily chapter of Rambam, one chapter, three chapters. You can choose yours as, as well. As well as, or if you choose to do the daily mitzvah, there are a number of translations of the Book of Mitzvot. Um, that follow the daily cycle, as well as it's found in the Chayeno booklets, as well as on that daily study app. Another modern option that we have today is, rather than study by reading, a lot of people prefer to study audio or with video. Um, advantage of audio is you can study while you're doing other things, right? People listen to audio podcasts, while they exercise, while they drive, you can listen to the Rambam every single day while you drive or while you, um, while you exercise or while you may be doing whatever else it is. There are many different podcasts and video of, um, of classes on the Rambam. Um, short synopsis, um, ones that go through it in detail, I would recommend, and I think by far the most popular one out there, is one by my uncle, Rabbi Gordon, who was a rabbi here in the valley. Um, and you can download their app. I think it's called Rabbi Gordon Live, where you can get his podcast both on the Torah, the Tanya, and on the daily chapter of Rambam. And um, they, I know a lot of people, tell, I've listened to it, but a lot of people tell me they really enjoy it. Um, it's very entertaining. So um, that would definitely, if you're an audio person or have the time, 
great way to go through the Rambam is simply by listening to the podcast. Um, you can download Rabbi Gordon's app, and I think his podcast is also available on the Daily Study app as well. Um, and that way you can study it um, as well. Uh, so I strongly encourage you to start now. Start today. Today is day one. Do it today. Um, and then, um, if, then continue. And in three years' time, you will be able to conclude the entire Mishnah Torah and have said you have studied the entirety in encyclopedia of our oral tradition, of our oral law. Very, very powerful thing. Even if you don't start today, start tomorrow, start next week, even if you start a little bit late, it's still worthwhile doing. So even if you don't make it today, or for those listening in later to the podcast, if you don't get a chance to listen today, you didn't, didn't get a chance to listen today, and it's already started a few days ago, or even a few weeks ago, it's never too late to start, and I would encourage you to join.